Welcome to a special, supremely funny edition to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Oglethorpe's second cousin, Jordan Rubin. Hey, Kimberly, did anything funny happen at the Supreme Court this term? There were some pretty funny moments at the Supreme Court. Let's go ahead and take a listen to some of the funniest moments from the Supreme Court's oral arguments this term, and then our audience can have a chance to vote on what they think uh, was the funniest or the supremely funniest. Okay, well, you know what? We're going to have to start this over. I'm sorry. All right. Forget that. <laughs> okay. Look, it's a new Supremely. It's a new studio. It's a new it's, season. It's not, yeah. It's, it's okay. Look, all right. Yeah. Okay. Just, Let me think about what I want to say. Sorry. Well, Jordan, there actually were some pretty funny moments at the Supreme Court this term. And let's go ahead and take a listen to the ones that we thought were the funniest. And then maybe our audience members can vote on what they think are the supremely funny moments at the court. All right. Sounds good. So here you go, listeners. Power up your cellular telephones, grab some carrots, and pop in your favorite French comedy. Here are the absolute funniest moments from the 2017 term. Jordan, oral arguments give the justices a chance to ask questions at the court. But if you were a lawyer this term, half of the battle was just understanding what they were trying to ask. Listen in on the big partisan gerrymandering case, Gill versus Whitford, which led to this exchange between Justice Alito and attorney Paul Smith. Uh, one of the judges in the court below asked, why do you calculate EG by, Mac by subtracting from the votes obtained by the winner, 50 percent of the votes, instead of the votes obtained by the runner-up? And Mr. McGee says, well, I have an answer to this, and I have a forthcoming paper, and I'll answer it in the forthcoming paper. And there are all of these questions. So this is 2017. Is the time to jump into this? That's a, a question. Is there a question there, Your Honor? Yeah, there is a question there. There are about ten of them. <laughs> it seems like the justices are still sorting out some of those questions in the case, which was argued in October. And that's because we're still waiting on a decision from the court in that case. But you know what, Kimberly? Gill wasn't the only case with question confusion this term. Another one was Wilson against Sellers. That's a case about which state court opinion to review in federal habeas proceedings. At the argument, the Georgia Solicitor General, Sarah Warren, had to confess to Justice Breyer that she didn't know exactly what he was trying to ask her. That comes after a classic Breyer hypo, so let's have a listen. Why do we not know? I mean, what he quotes in his brief, is this wrong? He says that Supreme Court Rule 36 says when somebody files... Uh, you know what? On second thought, let's speed this up. But because we've thought of one of your assistants, a bright young graduate, has walked into your office with a case from Georgia law of 1812, and judging from the dust, nobody's ever seen it before. But it was written by Oglethorpe's second cousin, twice removed, and there we are, uh, and it's brilliant. Nobody's thought of it. You say, how do we know that wasn't their reason? Now, that's extreme, but you see my point. Okay, what's the answer to my point? Justice Breyer, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the, what the question was. Well, the point, <laughs> the question. Wow, we sped that one up? Still pretty long. Classic Breyer. But sometimes the justices do make it easy on the advocates. That was true at the end of arguments in Wilson, when time was running out for Wilson's lawyer, Mark Olive. But not before he got to answer this softball question from Justice Sotomayor, who tried to save him from Justice Gorsuch's clusters. In, in that case, then what have we accomplished is my question, if you could answer that. 
You mean by just having a, a rubber stamp that says not for the same reason? It's just going to be a slightly different rubber stamp. Well, I think we've created a simple rule, and states could decide what they want to do. Correct. I see my time is up. I'd love to say correct. <laughs> well, <to> since <laughs> I could say correct and stop. I would at least at least like to give you the final word. You can <laughs> take a sentence. Yes, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Wilson won that case over Gorsuch's dissent. Not to be outdone by himself, Justice Breyer wasn't content to only dominate the questions this term. He got in on the answers, too, in Patrick, a case about separation of powers. The chief had to remind Breyer that, you know, actually they'd invited the lawyers to uh, answer some of the questions, too. But attorney Scott Gant thought, maybe we'll let the justices sort this one out. So why don't you bring your case in state court? It doesn't say the state court doesn't have a vote. I mean, you know, bring it in state court. I would have to think about whether we could do that. Why well, can the tribe be sued in state court? Yeah, general can jurisdiction. federal government be sued in state you can court? Start. Yeah. I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get in the way of a good discussion. Um. <laughs> the chief and Breyer wound up on opposite ends of that decision. I don't know, Kimberly. Maybe the justices can't keep to themselves because they want to show off all the stuff they know. That was true in Carpenter against United States, the huge cell phone data case. There it was Swing Justice Kennedy strutting his stuff when it came to that sweet cyber age thing called the cellular phone. Now, well, frankly, if, if we're going to talk about normal expectations and we have to make the judgment, it's, it seems to me there's a much more normal expectation that businesses have your cell phone data, I think everybody, almost everybody knows that. If I know it, everybody does. Uh, Speaking of something that everybody knows, or what they don't know, court watchers got a glimpse this term into some of the justices' private lives. Well, at least their eating habits anyway. As you might imagine, there was some discussion of food in a case called Masterpiece Cake Shop. The dispute over whether a Colorado baker can dodge a state discrimination law after he declined to serve a same-sex couple. Here's Justice Kagan asking Solicitor General Noah Francisco why baking involves speech, but cooking doesn't. The uh, the baker is speech, but the the great chef who's like everything is perfect on the plate, and it's a work of art. It's a masterpiece. Well, Your Honor, you have to confront that issue in every First Amendment case. You know, General, my, my colleagues, I think, go to uh, more uh, elite restaurants than I do. <laughs> but my- Francisco agreed. Same here, I, I, Your Honor. I th- Though he was spotted a few months later at an upscale French restaurant in D.C., dining with Attorney General Jeff Sessions and his deputy, Rod Rosenstein, who would go on to argue a case of his own at the Supreme Court this term. You know, Jordan, maybe that's what they were discussing. Could be. Kimberly, you know that feeling when you're really hungry, but your wife only feeds you a carrot? No. All right. Well, Justice Alito does. The day after the Masterpiece Cake Shop argument, that showed during the argument in Murphy against Smith, a case about statutory interpretation. The court there had to look at the meaning of the word satisfy when it comes to litigation awards in prisoner suits. Alito didn't appear satisfied with some of the arguments in that case. I mean, if my, if my wife gives me a carrot for dinner to satisfy my hunger, <laughs> but she knows that if she does that, I will just go in the refrigerator and stuff myself with lots of other stuff so that I won't be hungry anymore. Yeah. I don't know, does that make the carrot <laughs> sufficient to satisfy my hunger? 
No, Your Honor. In, in that, in, in that suppose, situation, it would probably, you know, be an Suppose she knows. Suppose she knows that he's going to eat that delicious turkey sandwich in the refrigerator. <laughs> now, now the carrots are just enough to fill up that little hole that will remain. <laughs> Hopefully, all of the justices were well fed after the argument. But if you thought that was the last of Alito, Breyer, or even French stuff, well, You'd be wrong. In a criminal sentencing case, Hughes versus United States, the odd couple was back at it again. This time, it started with a hypo from Justice Alito that, in retrospect, seems a little bit wrong. Let me give you this example. Let's say that nine people are deciding which movie to go and see. And four of them want to see a romantic comedy, and two of them want to see a romantic comedy in French, and four of them want to see a mystery. Now, is the, uh, are, the, are the two who want to see the romantic comedy in French, is that a logical subset of those who want to see a romantic comedy? According to mathematical research conducted by Bloomberg Law after the argument, it appears that Alito either meant to start off his hypo with 10 people, or he accidentally added one to the mix, amidst all the excitement of the argument. Of course, Jordan, in a room full of lawyers, nobody thought to point this out. But let's not pretend it's because they didn't want to be rude. Well, Kimberly, that's because sometimes you just have to tell it like it is. The court knows that. Living legend, Justice Ginsburg, didn't feel the need to hold back during arguments in the search and seizure case, Bird against the United States. During an exchange with Bird's lawyer, Bob Loeb, Ginsburg turned a complicated question from Sotomayor into a simple one. So I'm having, I'm having a problem with this case, which is why are we here? Meaning once he admitted that the, that the goods in the trunk were his, I don't know why that doesn't give him automatic standing to challenge the search. Um, I thought in Rackus it was the fact that the defendants had repeated three or four or five different times that the defendants claimed no proprietary interest in the good search. That's different than this case, isn't it? Exactly. exactly so why exactly. are we here on this legal issue at all? We're, we're here because the government and the Third Circuit has advocated a, rule, a, a blanket rule that if you're an unlisted driver, you never have an expectation of Even privacy. Even if you don't have an expectation of privacy in the trunk, and you've claimed an expectation of privacy in the property. And here An absent probable cause, there's no right to search. So why are we here? We agree 100 percent on that, Your Honor. Uh, You're here because you lost below. We lost below. <laughs> In another Fourth Amendment case argued that very same day, Justice Ginsburg was still feeling it. In Collins versus Virginia, the argument was over search in and around a home. No surprise then that things got a little, um, personal? Here's Justice Ginsburg talking about whether it mattered whose property was being searched. Isn't it a but problem the whose, whose curtilage it is? Here we're told that there was a close relationship between the defendant and the homeowner. But suppose there weren't that close relationship. Suppose it was a brand-new girlfriend and he never stayed overnight. He was hopeful, but he hadn't. <laughs> Well, that seems like a good place to end it. 
Thanks everyone for listening, and make sure to tune in to Bloomberg Law for the latest on French films and overnight hopefuls. And be sure to vote for your favorite funniest moment, or you can also vote on bna.com by checking out my Twitter account at Kimberly Robinson. And I'm at Jordan S. Rubin. And if you vote, you might win the opportunity to get a delicious carrot dinner. We hope it satisfies you. 